the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hey, welcome to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. It is Friday. Mm-hmm. You are here where everyone's on like their candy crash right now from Halloween. You think they're on their crash already? I am. No, just, ride, <laughs> just, just ride that high, man. So I've stopped eating as much sweets in my life as I used to, but when they're still around the house... It's a dangerous. It's like all bets are off. What's, daughter, the, what's the biggest danger suite around the house? You know what? It's anything in like the genre of like Skittles, Mike and Ike. Oh, Sour really? Pets kids. Like I'm not a chocolate guy right. as much. And so my daughter got a big thing of Mike and Ike's the other day. Mm. And I probably ate half of them. <laughs> and I was like, like, I was like, I can't stop eating them. Were you hating yourself as you're eating them? I like, was I don't feeling bad. Like I was like, man, I my willpower is like kind of gone. <laughs> <laughs> And so then you start like getting headaches and stuff, but it was good. It was good. So. Yeah, my kryptonite is Brussels sprouts. Nope, it's not. It's and not. if not, that is probably green beans. I just can't. If they're around, I can't stop. What is your? Uh, what is now coming off of Halloween? What is your candy of choice? Oh gosh, why why choose just or one genre? How about chocolate or like gummy sweet? I like them both, man. I like okay. Butterfingers and Snickers, but I also really I like do. Skittles and Sour Patch Kids and. I am an equal opportunity candy consumer. <laughs> but yeah, I'm totally with you though. If it's not in the house, I'm fine. If it's like yeah. open on a counter, like if somewhere in the office is like, oh, here's a candy bowl. I'm like, get that away from me. I don't need any of that in my life. Do you remember in the studio there used to be a bowl of jelly beans and I would do like three quarters of them in a show? Just like full, like scoopfuls. <laughs> I can't talk right now. I'm just eating the jelly beans. Keep talking. I got a mouthful of jelly beans right now. Uh, hopefully you've uh, recovered and you've warmed up after the craziness of the snow and Halloween and all of that. Don't remind me. Man, I was so mad about that. <laughs> Just so Who was the angry. most mad I've seen you in a while, actually? Like, Can you oh, believe this? Oh, on that on Halloween afternoon, I was like getting gas for the car and like, oh, this isn't cute <laughs> snow. This is like annoying mid-January snow. It's like aggravated assault snow. Oh, I was so mad. I also like don't have the scraper in my car so i was like i haven't done it either i found like a t-shirt from the garage and like wiping everything down it was not a good day do you know what i used the other day on our van i used a tennis racket that was in the back of our car and it actually worked really Did well it? i had an umbrella in my car so i'm like it's a big bright yellow umbrella and i'm sure the neighbors are like can someone get this kid a snow scraper do you please? think we could go all winter without a scraper oh i definitely could i'm not sure there's those days where like to. there's that like it feels like a quarter inch of ice in yeah yeah <laughs> And then you always have that moment where you're like, do I just start driving? Right. I just, I know the road. Wow. Can I confess something? I'm a notorious low visibility driver. I am too. You like scrape out like a, like a three inch window. You're like, this is fine. It's I, always that moment you go out. It's like, uh, it's Sunday. So you got to get to church, but like, you can't really see. And you're like, <laughs> right. 
Well, I'm going for Here it. Here we go. Hope I don't have to change lanes. Yep. I'm doing the Lord's work. Here we go. Doing the Lord's work. Hedge of protection, Lord. Yeah. Melt this, please, quickly. In the name of Jesus. Oh, I didn't introduce ourselves, though. I'm Brian Fromm, joined by Ian Simpkins. Again, Hello. this is The Common Good. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Find our podcast uh, wherever it is. Uh, you find your podcast. You know, I found an interesting article about uh, a law that was just approved in New York's in uh, the state of New York. Let me read it a little bit. Okay. Because I'm actually kind of surprised that there's pushback against this law. I don't know. Tell me what I'm missing. That's what I'm asking you to do. Oh, boy. New York, which let's just speak politics. Politically, New York is uh, at the front of the line, usually when it comes to progressive politics um, think about the abortion law, all this stuff, kind of Illinois, New York, New Jersey. They're kind of the ones. And so, uh, and California, New York has approved a law that prohibits churches and other nonprofits from campaigning in support or against political candidates. According to the Christian post, governor Andrew Cuomo signed Senate bill S 4347 into law last week. The law is a state level equivalent to the current Johnson amendment, which prohibits nonprofits from campaigning. Hmm. The Johnson Amendment was passed in 1954, but has been recently criticized for limiting the rights of nonprofits, including churches. Then in May of 2017, President Trump signed an executive order that called for the federal government to stop enforcing the amendment. I wasn't aware of that. I don't know if you were even aware of that. I was not. So nonprofits could publicly support or not support political campaigns. Officially, though, the amendment has not been repealed. Uh, the New York law now says that nonprofit groups, secular or religious, cannot participate in, quote, any political campaign on behalf of or in opposition to any candidate for political office. Huh. Uh, going down, though, the Ryan Tucker of the Alliance Defending Freedom wrote in a New York Daily News opinion column that the law is another way for the government to, quote, crack down on political speech. In the minds of New Yorkers, he wrote. Uh, New York lawmakers, a group can only speak freely if it pays the government extra for the privilege of doing so. That type of financial coercion may pay for a payroll increase, but it will sideline the roles of both secular and religious charities. Cuomo's comments are wrong, he wrote. The government can't condition your tax-exempt status with the surrender of your First Amendment rights or any other constitutionally protected freedom. Help me with what I'm missing here, because I don't know, ever since I've been a pastor... (laughs) Ever since I've been a pastor, I've been told this whole kind of Johnson Amendment, like, you got to be really careful about what you say. Yeah, like, you right. can't endorse, you can't push. And now, I didn't even know, like, President Trump had repealed that. Like, when I read what New York is doing, even though I agree with so little of what Cuomo does in New York, I'm like, yeah, I'm for that. That sounds good to me. What do you feel like? Or tell me what I'm missing in this. I don't know what you're missing, actually. This is a, a pretty surprising turn. It's interesting. So who's this guy? Ryan Tucker yeah. of the Alliance Defending Freedom uh, wrote in a New York Daily News opinion column that the law is another way the government is cracking down on political speech. Right. Um, which is a pretty fair assessment, I imagine. He goes on, he says, in the minds of New York lawmakers, a group can only speak freely if it pays the government extra for the privilege of doing so. Um, do you even agree with that sentiment, by the way? Like, is that I, I don't like I always thought. Uh, so you and I, we've talked a lot about how we try to be somewhat apolitical uh, as pastors, not that we don't care about politics, but in terms of pushing people, because we do know there's some sway that we have. But I've never felt like the government is stopping me from telling people who I vote for. It's just about like us as a church right. and me as the pastor from the pulpit and those kind of things. 
I mean, I think the reverse of this is so dangerous when we as pastors are given full freedom to uh, to campaign and to push. I think you always put it so well with uh, the the melding of the cross and the, the cross and the flag holding hands. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, man, I, I want to keep those two separate, not be apolitical in my own personal life, but I don't think it's my place to be up there endorsing politicians. Hmm. Now, maybe if this starts going down to policy, like if they're trying to crack down on your ability to speak about, say, abortion or um, what, you know, whatever other other policies, I'd have a problem with that. Yeah, I'd have a problem with that. But when it comes to candidates and campaigns, I don't know. This feels OK to me. So who who do you think has the biggest issue with this? Like, Are you hearing any pushback on this? Are you seeing anything in the Twitter sphere or prominent religious leaders or nonprofit leaders who are, you know, rallying against this? Have you seen any outcry? That's why I wanted to talk about this, because I've always felt like this was just a given. Like, you know, I don't know how long you've been in ministry. I've now been this freaks me out. I've been like 20 years. Yeah. And since day one, it's like, hey, you can't talk about don't ever get up and tell people who you're voting for, or who to vote for. Uh, let someone come campaign. Uh, now, as long as they in New York and nationwide, as long as they um, enforce this equally on both sides of the aisle, I actually think it's a good thing for nonprofits to be held to this standard. You know, the enforce the equal enforcement thing will be the true litmus test, though, right? Because that is that is what gets tricky in any of these discussions, particularly regarding free speech. And we saw this on Twitter. We've seen this on Facebook. We've seen this in yes. campaigns for the last decade plus. So I, I think. Uh, and again, who even determines what equal and just and yes. fair looks like? Who's the arbiter of those categories? Well, I, I do think, though, like this is part of what Cuomo says here. The New Yorkers have a right to free and fair elections, and this law will further protect our democracy from unjustified interferences once and for all. I imagine the rub for a lot of people will be the word unjustified, mm. right? So yeah. you and I have never led a church of 40,000 that could maybe potentially have much bigger sway. Like for me, a lot of the conviction around not endorsing a candidate from the pulpit is that's just not what the pulpit is for. Exactly. Where you bring this into the legal sphere. As opposed sphere. to being the law. Right, exactly. To me, I'm like, look, opposed, uh, not even just my theological conviction, which it is part of it. The other piece is like, oh, that's, that, that's just not even good tact. That's not yeah. good use of the of the platform in the office. So that uh, the whole thing is, it's bizarre to me that this is that big of a deal. It really is. That's why I wanted to start with it because I was like, I didn't even know this was a thing. So uh, call us naive. We would love to hear from you on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show. Coming up next, Christianity Today uh, ran an article about Christian fraternities and sororities hmm. called Pious Pledges and Consecrated Keggers. That wow. is coming up next here on the Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us today. Find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. Find our uh, podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. And up on Facebook is this article that just came out from Christianity Today uh, earlier this week. And it says this, pious pledges and consecrated uh, keggers. So basically, a guy from Wheaton and a guy from Judson are going to talk about fraternities and sororities. Uh, <laughs> you don't know my life. <laughs> I know your college. <laughs> I have more than one college. There you go. Uh, but uh, one thing that uh, 
I don't know if uh, obviously I'm guessing it was this way, Judson, but I loved my experience at Wheaton College. But yeah, same. Uh, one thing you loved my experience at Wheaton College. I loved That's it. Awesome. I loved it for you on behalf of you. I loved but it. But one thing that was not in place there that that is in place for a lot of people's college experiences is the fraternity and the sorority. Right? Is just the whole Greek system and all of that. And this article uh, is is talking about that. Basically, talking about how. Uh, fraternities and sororities, whether it be in movies or in reality, are kind of best known for two things they say in here. One is volunteerism, philanthropy, and the second is, and uh, to use the quote in Christianity Day here, is raging parties. Uh, and so we all, you know, whether you went to a school or not like this, you know, uh, sororities and fraternities are often known for big parties, a lot of alcohol. And now what this article is trying to highlight in the November issue of Christianity Day is there is a rise in Christian fraternities and sororities that are Christ-centric communities trying to engage uh, with their college campuses while remaining distinct from their secular environments. Yeah. It's kind of uh, be in the world but not of it on college campuses. Uh, let me just start there. Did you even know there was a rise of Christian fraternities and sororities. This was even a thing. I didn't know it was on the rise, but I have certainly heard of okay. things like this. I, I I mean, admittedly, have not taken a deep dive into it, but I've heard people reference it before for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So one of them was uh, Beta Upsilon Ups, uh, Chi, which stands for Brothers Under Christ. And so um, it, it's this concept of uh, we are going to gather in a sorority or a fraternity uh, and the common belief is going to be Jesus. It's the common thread is going to be our faith in Jesus. We're going to remove the alcohol element of it. They kind of make jokes in here about some of them throwing awesome root beer keggers, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, I found funny. Uh, but then they're they're kind of focused on philanthropy and also discipleship, which is not what you think of uh, when it comes to fraternities and sororities. I, I guess. Uh, let me ask you this. If you were going to a state school or had gone to a state school or a school where there's kind of the Greek system, would you do you think you would have been drawn to something like this? Oh, no, but not for the right moral reasons. <laughs> what reasons? I, just to be contrarian. Like, what's the thing everyone's doing? I'll do something different. <laughs> but then I probably would have immediately regretted it, feeling like, I don't have any friends. Who are my people? Like, that would have I, – I, I probably would have gone back and forth on that a little bit, but – I, yeah, again, neither of us went to state schools. Yep. My only real exposure to it is either A, friends who did, or movies I've seen. So my experience is very limited, I guess, and like what these groups It's just Animal House for you right now. Yeah, right. (laughs) And I know that that's not totally true, but I have also read some horror stories, too, that Mm -hmm. are very real and very frightening. I was definitely a rabble rouser, so that part, I think, would attract me to it like oh we're gonna get a bunch of trouble and do stupid things yeah that i get down on that so it's hard to say it's hard to say what 18 year old Ian really would have done in that environment (laughs) what about you do you have any sense of what you would have gravitated toward i think i would have gravitated towards something like this i think uh uh yeah i think i would have in some ways when i read this article it feels like what these guys and girls are trying to accomplish is that is a lot of the what I would look back on my time at Wheaton as the best of what happened for me there. Hmm. Uh, I look back at my time on Wheaton and I don't know if you feel this way about your time at Judson. I learned a lot in classes, uh, had just phenomenal teachers, 
chapel speak like like the the structure was wonderful yeah but what was the best uh well what was the best was i met my future wife there as well amen but i i had such deep guy friendships that were kind of centered on like we were kind of in the same spot in life right Mm -hmm. we'd all just left home we all had this desire to follow jesus while at the same time kind of spread our wings and figure out life a little bit and I'm not sure that 18-year-old Brian could have handled, like, the state school experience really well and had my faith flourish. Really? I think I would have come out a believer. Like, I would have come out okay, but I think it would have been a, a little bit tumultuous. And I, I, as I read this article, this feels like what they're trying to do. Right. Like, what I just described, uh, they, they said, like, right, there's no coming or going, but you're in a house with people. You're living with people. With the same objective, trying to grow in Christ, the kind of the discipleship, but also trying to reach others. It's like they're trying to take again what I what I liked most most about Wheaton, and they're trying to say, okay, how do we do that in a school that's not necessarily trying to accomplish that? Right. And so it's not like a campus crusade where you, everyone then goes back to their dorm and comes, but it's like, nope, we live together, we're doing this. Yeah, I I love this, man. I I really do. I like this. This doesn't feel like a. We're trying to remove ourselves from the world. Right. Because you talked about that the other day, right? Like this whole we're sent, we're to be in the world, but not of it. This feels like a, we're trying to uh, we're trying to grow with other guys or other girls who have the same passion. We're trying to do the same thing. Uh, so, I mean, in some ways, so we don't lose our faith, so we're not alone and we can kind of keep growing. This feels like a cool discipleship model on college campuses. Yeah, I would call this like an early stage of an intentional community. Yeah. You know, a lot of the makeups of what an intentional community is and looks like, and they often have, you know, a, a mission statement or values of the house. And a, a lot of that, I mean, honestly, I'm not typically a fan <laughs> of Christians trying to yeah. replicate culture but in a Christian way, mm-hmm. uh, not typically. But like even in the article, it's talking about like, oh, they're playing beer pong with cups of water and the empty cans were Dr. Pepper. And like that kind of stuff to me is is almost like a little nod. Like we get it. We get that this is different. But the general ethos, though, of like we're committed to life together, uh, a shared purpose, a shared focus and cause, uh, accountability, community life. I think I think those are awesome. And I think that accomplishes something different than what like crew or intervarsity yeah. can accomplish on a college campus, which is also important, also no very doubt. necessary. No doubt. But this is almost like a like a two of those types of gatherings. Uh and I think if done well, I'd love to see more writing on the actual structure itself. Yep. You know, what is what is the accountability structure and what's the hierarchy? What's the is there any governance? Is there any you know, again having not grown up or not having gone to a state school, mm-hmm. uh I'd be curious to know exactly how some of that plays out, what some of the pitfalls are. But I had a bunch of friends post college that Bought a big old huge house and did sort of this. Really? As young adults, yeah. And that was, I mean, you got married pretty young, so maybe that wasn't like a, but for a lot of my friends, that's what we did. And we got a, a place in a very specific part of town and just we made a decision to really love this neighborhood well and the best of our abilities and had shared meals and shared Bible yeah. study. And the I like guy, it. I like it a lot. The one of the guys in here from Beta Upsilon Chai says, uh, it isn't simply a secular fr- fraternity minus the alcohol, right? Like it's not about what are we not doing, but right. it's about what are we doing? I think uh, I often look back at college, like I was talking about as the time where my relationships were the most intense, hmm. right? Because you're living with these people. Uh, and, and I do think that there's some loss as we get older in the intensity of some of these relationships that can bring about kind of that life on life discipleship. I think the church and we as adults now it looks different. 
But there's something to be learned in this model of people saying, no, it's not just trying to get away from the world minus the alcohol and kind of protect ourselves. They're going, no, we're trying to be proactive to grow uh, and we're being philanthropic. We're trying to serve our school and our classmates. Right. Uh, I like this. And and it looks like they're doing a bunch of other things like social events and parties and dances and charity work. So they're I mean, yeah, it is far more than just simply like a like a knockoff, like a replica of. You know, whatever these other which fraternities look like. Which when I first read this, I was like, is this just a way to protect yourself? But no, I think it's I think this is really cool. So you can read it at Christianity Today uh, about these co- this rise of college fraternities and sororities. Well, coming up next, we're going to tackle a uh, article from the Gospel Coalitions uh, about five ways to build trust. That's what's coming up next on The Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you join us. It is Friday, and as we have learned before, I love Fridays. You really do. I really do. You might have a problem. Uh, and I, I didn't even think I realized it until we, you and I started joking about how much I love Fridays. Now I'm like, no, actually, I do. <laughs> I do love Fridays. I'm so glad I could help unveil that part of your life. a weekend with playing with the kids and having fun. So, uh, yeah, yeah. What's your weekend plans? Anything? I mean, come on. I keep thinking one of these weekends are moving. I've had yeah. plans. Hey, I do I do things. <laughs> I do things. No, I'm, no, I'm like all defensive. Hey, <laughs> listen, listen up. I was in a Christian sorority for, for sorority <laughs> fraternity. <laughs> yeah, either of those is problematic. Yes, yes. Uh, my uh, so we're hosting a, a big women's event called Grit and Grace with Aubrey Sampson. I saw it on we've Facebook. had on the show. So my wife will be at that. So uh, Friday night will be me and the boys, and then. Uh, Saturday, we're meeting a friend who's in from out of town. Oh, that's awesome! And we got some got other family stuff going on. Stuff yeah, going we'll on. be all over You're the place. Actually more than me. Who am I? Who am I kidding? I did see. Uh, good for her, Aubrey Sampson, who's been on here multiple times yeah, on our show. She's crushing it, man. She is. Uh, I saw it on Facebook, not by her, someone else did, but like apparently, she, like the, the one at your church is sold out, and she's the uh-huh. main speaker at the big Wheaton Bible uh, Christmas event. I uh-huh. think. Uh, Aubrey might be growing beyond the common good <laughs> uh, for, for good reason, man. She's, oh, she's she's awesome. brilliant. Uh, yeah, so we'll have her on again. We'll keep her. We'll keep her as a we'll keep, keep her like as as like part of the family, as part of the team. Okay, no? that yeah. didn't work so well. <laughs> we gotta reframe that. Keep her found a little. Did yeah. sound a little possessive. Yes. I did yes. not mean it, it like sure that. Did. Anyway, uh, you can find us on Facebook, Common Good Radio Show. You can find our podcast wherever it is you find your podcast. Wait, what are you doing? We didn't talk about what you're doing this weekend. Uh, yes. What <laughs> am I doing? Oh, I'm doing a wedding this weekend. Oh. So I'm excited. A guy that goes to my church who was in my youth group. Uh, and so um, I am excited for that. And I love doing weddings. Weddings are really fun. Yeah, I like doing weddings. I like doing weddings. Then church, coach my son's basketball team, so we will do that again. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it'll, I'm excited. I just like the weekend when the kids don't have school and you're not running around doing all the craziness. So. Yeah, tell me about it. Uh, at the Gospel Coalition, uh, there was an article this week entitled, Five Ways to Build Trust as a Pastor. Because the Gospel Coalition kind of goes towards pastors. But as I read this, I actually thought, yeah, this is pastor-centric, but it's also... Just kind of five ways to build trust in general. Like if you were a plumber, this is be a great five ways to build trust. And so I thought, you know, it's not just for pastors. So how about uh, we go through this and uh, we talk about how this works for pastors, but also just <laughs> regular people in general, ways to build trust. So anyway, the first one they say is this, uh, five ways to build trust. Number one, see people who need to grow, not problems that need to be solved. A fellow pastor once told me I'd like ministry a lot more if I didn't have to deal with people who needed my ministry. 
If we're honest, we're all tempted at times to see problems instead of people. And when this crops up, we must address the root of the issue in our hearts. Few things will devastate an economy of trust like gossip, slander, or grumbling against others. And we've I felt that as a pastor. Yeah. I've joked with people, oh, ministry would be a lot easier if it wasn't for the people. Right. Uh, but in any profession, we could see beyond the people. Uh, I like to think of it this way. Don't view people uh, as a means to your end, like whatever you're trying to accomplish, but see the people in front of you. Yeah, that's a good reminder. Number two, this one might be more pastor specific. Keep confidential information private. Mm-hmm. Since ministry is about the heart, we're often privy to the parts of people's lives that are usually kept locked behind closed doors. Few things will slam those doors shut as quickly as a loose tongue. The sin not only betrays the trust of those who've confided in you previously, but it also keeps others from trusting you in the future. I'm always thinking about this when somebody's actually oversharing with me about Mm. somebody else. And my thought almost instinctually is if you're oversharing about someone else to me, you're probably also oversharing about me to someone else. That's a great point. And I think people pick up on that. That's a great point. Number three, lead by example. Integrity isn't just about what we say. It's also about what we do. Yeah, that's right. If we want people to trust our words, they must see them at work in our actions. Hmm. Since we tell people it's good to foster a servant's heart, we must be content to be treated like servants. Since we tell people to work for God's glory, we must be diligent and productive. Since we tell people to rest in God's proficiency and power by observing a Sabbath, we must repent of our addiction to work and actually rest ourselves. Ouch. Since we tell people to give financially, we must honor the Lord with the first fruits of our income. We shouldn't be asking anyone to do anything we aren't willing to do ourselves. That is convicting. Yeah, I was writing a talk this morning, actually, on Sabbath. That's for – that's actually not until January. But even just in preparation for it, I was like, oh, boy. I love writing talks about things that I'm terrible yes. at, right? Yes. Like nothing more convicting than like, okay, that one stung. Oh, that one hurt. Okay, that's, okay. Can't wait to teach Still this. hurting. Still hurting. All right. Number four, share leadership. If we want people to trust us, they need to see us trusting them. We won't build an economy of trust if we don't actively trust people to mm. do what needs to be done. This means that we must lead by investing in people to do what we would often accomplish easier and more efficiently on our own. Interesting. I'm so glad they included that because that's often, I think, the biggest hurdle to delegation is we – in a cerebral sense and probably even correctly say, ah, it's just faster if I do that. Yeah. Like, yeah. It probably is faster if you do that and you're going to continue to be the bottleneck of this team or this organization or whatever. It's absolutely. To kind of keep, I mean, delegation looks great on paper and it's much harder in practice. Yeah. I remember somebody when I first started at Four Corners talking about asking me to kind of give some thought to what will, uh, what will what will I be the ceiling of? Like, where's yeah, my right. ceiling, and how do we make sure that doesn't equal my ceiling equal the church's ceiling? Right, and that's a that's a difficult one to ask. Yeah, no kidding. Last one, number five: model godly conflict resolution. I was once told that ministry is a series of hard conversations, the hardest (laughs) almost always having to do with conflict, Mm. especially if we're the ones at fault. Matthew 5 tells us to take the first step towards reconciliation by quickly and humbly seeking forgiveness. Where two or more are gathered. (laughs) (laughs) An economy of trust. I love the way you said that. Where two or more are gathered. The more you know. An economy of trust isn't built by being perfect, but by growing a character rooted in grace. When we humbly own our mistakes or sin and then seek restoration, trust often follows. Uh, But pastors, we need to take the first step here. God often does his deepest work of building trust as we meet people in conflict, armed with humble love rooted in the gospel of grace. Every interaction is making either deposits or withdrawals from our shared bank of trust. Let's labor 
to grow that trust. I think that's really, that's all really helpful. Can I read the beginning of this actually? I thought the his yeah. introduction to this was actually helpful. I don't mean to say actually, Mr. Steve Meisel, I'm sure everything you write is great. Uh, <laughs> as a church planner, I was coached to keep a close eye on the quote economies that would affect our ability to pursue our mission. Pay close attention to the critical numbers, watch the national and local job markets and watch your Sunday numbers. We count people because people count. Overall, this advice is sound, but it's incomplete. There is another far more important economy we must keep a careful eye on, the economy of trust. Trust is foundational to everything we do. Mm. Trust of a good name runs between members and leaders and within the leadership itself. It's what Solomon described in Proverbs 22.1. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. That's Mm. such a good reminder. Yeah, it is. As a church planning pastor, few things will affect your ability to lead people through difficult seasons like their trust in you. When you have a good name, they're much more likely to both listen to and follow you. Instead of fearing your summons to sacrifice, they're more likely to hear an invitation to grow in grace. And mm. as you develop a culture that builds trust, the whole community benefits. I think that's, that's such really a good, good reminder, especially in an age where like, oh, if I can cut corners without anyone noticing or if I can just give half the information or we don't see that as like yeah. bank robbery mistrust. But just sort of like the slow shading of a story yes. that I think people pick up on that, too, and they will conclude, like, mm-hmm. I don't know that that person's trustworthy. And the reason – one of the reasons this is really important to think through is because you could spend years building trust and with one misstep – No joke. Cut it out. No like joke. Cut it from its knees. And so – I think it's good to have these in mind. We'll put these five up on our Facebook page. Would love to have you interact with them. Well, coming up next, a new study found something really interesting about employees that will cause them to be much less likely to quit. We're going to discuss that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Woo! Thank you. Did you like that? Just a little, AM 1160. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to work on my radio voice. Who was your friend that we interviewed the other day? Jeff. Jeff, right? Jeff Prasapio. Whoa, what a voice. We're never going to have a voice what like Jeff Prasapio. What a no. voice. If you, if you missed uh, yesterday's show, just go back, or two days ago. Yeah. If you missed two days ago, just go back and listen to the podcast simply to hear this guy's voice. And while you're at it, why don't you draw yourself a bath, Uh-oh. <laughs> light some candles, get some incense, turn on the Jeff Prasapio episode. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Jeff's probably so uncomfortable with yes. me saying that. Men, men do not let your wife hear that while oh, they're coming. Just that oh, voice. Boy. That was silky. <laughs> and so, uh, boy, we have derailed. <laughs> derailed. <laughs> do you know why? Why? Because it's Friday. Oh, that makes sense. We too, uh, we we derail far more on Friday than any other we day. We do. We do. Coming off of Halloween, it's all, it's all. Uh, or do you celebrate that it's Reformation Day on Halloween? Which one do you go with? <laughs> Does it have to be either or? It does. <laughs> Usually the people who celebrate Reformation Day are much less down on Halloween. Uh, someone sent me a meme and it was Luther and it just said, stop, hammer time. Because <laughs> I saw the one girl with Luther just, just said, nailed it. <laughs> nailed it. So another pastor texted me uh, this morning and it was, um, it was 95 Reese's on the wall. <laughs> Come on. Yeah, I think Hammer Time might be the best one. Oh, I think so, too. That's good. Well, happy Reformation Day in the last couple days for all (laughs) of you out there. Thanks, man. Uh, Anyway, we teased this before, but there was something that a study found uh, that makes employees feel uh, become 50% less likely 
to quit. So if you're out there and you have employees and you wonder, how do I keep my employees? How do I keep them engaged? How do I get them not to quit? This is going to be really interesting. But also, if you're an employee, I think you could kind of look at your organization, church, business, school, whatever else, and go, huh, I do really want that. And maybe you could begin some conversation. So what is it that causes people to be 50% less likely to quit? And just to reiterate, I don't think this is just for bosses or managers or leaders. I think this works in families, small Uh, groups. I think there are so many applications for this principle. Not even just the workplace environment. That's exactly right. right. So it says, study finds employees who, ready for it, feel included are 50% less likely to quit. Start fostering a sense of belonging as soon as the first week to boost employee performance and satisfaction. So let Mm. me just read a little bit, and then it has uh, some suggestions for how to actually do that. It says, Belonging is considered a basic human need, yet many employers fall short when it comes to fostering a sense of belonging in their workplace. One recent study found that being more intentional about employee belonging can lead to positive business results. The value of belonging at work, a study from BetterUp, a career and leadership coaching platform, examined the measurable value of belonging in the workplace, which as a quick pause, I think that's really important. The measurable value, I feel like so often uh, old school thinking is, well, if I don't, it doesn't lead to black and white dollars and cents, then I'm not doing it right. This could feel like what we call a soft skill. Belonging, Mm -hmm. you should just get the satisfaction from doing a job well done. You're getting paid for it. Right, exactly. So the study, which surveyed uh, 1,789 full-time workers from a variety of industries, found that a strong sense of belonging showed a 56% increase in job performance and a 50% decrease in turnover risk. The data also showed that employees who feel as though they belong are 167% more likely to recommend their employer Mm. as a great place to work. Given the strong case for belonging in the workplace, how can you foster a culture of inclusion in your workplace? And I would add or church, Mm -hmm. or small group, or family. I've highlighted some key tips below. So why don't you kick us off, Brian Fromm, with number one of three of ways to help us kind of make people feel the sense of belonging. Yeah, this is just really fascinating. Number one, encourage interactions across teams. Your employees likely spend plenty of time with their direct team members, but might feel somewhat isolated if they don't recognize other employees around the office Mm. or colleagues who work remotely. To boost belonging, you should encourage all employees to get to know staff outside their direct teams. On this guy's team, the author, he says, on my team of more than 200 employees, we start encouraging cross-team interactions during the very first week. New employees are introduced in front of the whole company during our weekly huddle. Each batch of new employees also gets lunch one day during the first week with a few tenured employees Hmm. from other teams, helping that new staff better understand our culture and how different teams work. He says, my team also taps into a Slack app called Donut, which pairs up two random employees from across the company to get to know one another. Once paired in the app, these employees can get a donut, coffee, lunch, or simply video chat with one another informally to forge connections and support a sense of belonging across the team. That's super interesting. Actually, I've never heard of that app before. Have you? Never. No, not at all. Number two, recognize employees for their hard work. Some employees might feel as though they don't belong because they don't receive any feedback on their work performance. This can ultimately leave them questioning whether or not they're living up to expectations and can even cause their engagement and productivity to take a hit. This, again, is sort of flies in the face of some of the conventional wisdom that like, hey, just assume you're doing a good job if I say nothing. 
which unfortunately, I feel like men, we, we tend to be worse at this, yep, right? Yep. Kind of in the marriage context, too. It's like, oh, you should assume I love you. I told you, <laughs> I told you on our wedding day. I thought that yeah. was enough. You're like, no. I'll man, let I'm you know not. if it changes. I'll let you know if it changes, right. I think we do this in workplaces a lot. It says to boost productivity and inclusion at your company, recognize your employees when, uh, recognize your employees when they do great work. Managers can do this on an individual basis. Specific examples can be called out in smaller team meetings or employees can be recognized publicly to support an even greater sense of belonging. Like the yellow box, for example, we bought like a WWF belt. It's like a big gold one, but with oh, like awesome. our logo on it. And then at the end of every staff meeting, which is every other week, uh, everyone goes around and gets a chance to nominate somebody who just did some awesome work in the last two weeks. That's really cool. And then the person who had the belt the last time then awards the belt to the new person. Oh, that's cool. And like our arts director will play like Rocky music and everyone like gets up and cheers and then we award them the belt. It's, it's pretty awesome. That's really cool. You know, someone like myself who leads a much smaller staff. This one can be difficult, number two, because you could just assume everybody belongs. You know, oh, hey, right. there's five of us, six of us, seven, whatever. So, of course, of course, we're always talking. We're always around each other. And then all of a sudden you get feedback from them going, I haven't really heard any feedback about my actual job. Right, or right. Oh, my gosh. I didn't realize that. So That's interesting. And number three, collect and act on employee feedback. In one of uh, his most recent posts, he writes, I wrote about a study from ServiceNow that found more than half, 55% of employees don't think their opinions matter to their employers. If this is the case on your team, it will leave employees feeling frustrated and as though they don't truly belong on the team. Your team should have a process in place to collect employee feedback on a regular basis. One way to do so is by distributing employee feedback surveys. Not only can you collect general feedback about various aspects of your organization and culture through these surveys, but you can also ask employees whether or not they feel a sense of belonging. So you can measure this directly. Once you receive and analyze feedback, share the results with all employees and outline next steps to address the feedback. This will make employees feel like they're truly part of the team and contributing to continued improvement at your organization. <clears throat> he writes, employee belonging is all too often overlooked by employers, but it's critical to employee retention and productivity. By taking proactive steps to encourage belonging across your team, you can boost employee engagement and as a result, drive profits for your business. This actually makes me think about in churches. We go, that's what I was going to ask. What makes people stick even attending your church? Right. And I think it's the exact same, you know, it might not be feedback or this net. I think this sense of belonging though, yeah. people want to feel like whether it's a big church like yours, a smaller church like mine, they want to feel like they belong to something. Yeah. We're doing something. I matter here. People recognize me. I think it's the same concept. Well, you know, what's crazy too is how much effort and energy and maybe rightfully so we put into the 60 minute Sunday morning yep. experience. But everything that I'm reading, like I just read something a couple of weeks ago that says people are making a decision to come back within their first 90 seconds of pulling into your it's parking amazing. lot. Amazing. I'm like 90 seconds. They might not even be in the auditorium by then. Mm. That's like your greeters. Yep. That is the friendliness of the actual community that has nothing to do maybe with the song selection or the sermon length or the yep. topic. You know what I mean? Like yep. this is why I'm always saying to our first impressions team, like you, you guys, I think are the front lines of yeah. whether or not people feel like they belong here. That's massively important. Yeah. This is a great article. Uh, it written towards like business leaders, but I think it really, like you pointed out, really kind of goes across the board with some important facts. Well, coming up next, we're going to talk about another article out of Christianity Today, which talks about uh, pastors, about pastoring with a big fake smile, it says. <laughs> Coming up next on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common, our common hopes 
our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Really thankful to have you with us in this 5 o'clock hour on a Friday afternoon. People, you know, they're already... They're they're loosening their tie, they're driving home, they're feeling good. Do people still do that? Like the whole. When was the last time you wore a tie? Oh, a long time ago. It's funny. I went to lunch two <laughs> days ago. It was me uh, as a pastor. It was another guy who was pretty blue collar in his job, and then a guy who uh, has a more not a corporate job, but a more it's like in the science field. So he was in a tie. Hmm. I'm in a hooded sweatshirt, <laughs> and the other guy was in like just work clothes, and we were right. like. This is really interesting. Look at us. And the conversation went to, uh, when was the last time you wore a tie? I'm like, other than funerals or weddings, I don't know. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm I'm good with that. It is funny. I don't really give off the tie vibe either. And anytime that I do for like a, you know, an appropriate yeah. event, people are yeah. like, ooh, you, <laughs> you own a tie? Or I'm people like, like, who died? <laughs> yeah. That's unfortunate. Right. Yes. It's just always like the sense of like, oh my gosh, you have a jacket? And I'm like, yeah, I'm oh, a grown man. Grew up. What Look the at heck? Him. There will be, uh, but this guy, it's funny, the guy who was wearing the tie at lunch, when he comes to church on Sunday, he is super casual. Yeah. And it hit me. I was like, oh, you're super casual on Sunday because you have to wear a tie during the week. Oh, interesting. And uh, it's probably why you're like, I, the last thing I want to wear is a tie. That's so. what's funny. We have our Monday evening service. So a lot of our musicians are coming straight from their city jobs. So we have like our drummer, one of our drummers, Dan Williams, awesome dude. He, yep. He's taking the train right in from the loop. So he's going right from there to the box and he's wearing like a vest and tie. And I'm like, you're really elevating the class on that stage right now. Just see, see this well, drummer well, like in look a full at these suit. guys. They dress up. Like right. they got a band, but they dress up. What <laughs> right. a cool thought they've done here and you're right. like nope just got off the train uh so at christianity today uh another article that came out on their website and it was interestingly titled this because this is the second one we've done that i think today where it's written to pastors but i actually think it's it's an issue for everybody yeah uh, and not just pastors so it's written to pastors under their leadership uh section of their website and it says this pastoring with a big fake smile and this guy by the name of Wes Falk wrote, I often hide my struggles from my church because I fear people will use them against me. Let me read mm-hmm. that again. I often hide my struggles from my church because I fear people will use them against me. And so I'm wondering first, before we even jump into the article, is this a, is this something you struggle with? Is this a fear that you have as a pastor? As an Enneagram 3? Absolutely. 100%. <laughs> Uh, if out of uh, history, out of experience, or is this more projected? Like, I worry that if I'm too oh, vulnerable, yeah. people are going to... No, that's the thing. Not out of history hardly at all, actually. Mm-hmm. I've had the pleasure in pretty much every church I've ever worked at to be surrounded by lovely, beautiful, trustworthy people, I think. And I can only speak, I guess, to this particular wiring. A lot of it is just sort of the fear of the what if. Yes. And a lot of that comes from... I think a lot of pastors probably feel this, regardless of their personality type, the sort of like never let them see a sweat because... I'm in charge or I'm mm-hmm. leading or if if they see a crack in my armor, then will I still be trustworthy? I think there's – it's less about, oh, someone's going to proactively use what I share against me in a malicious way. But it often feels like, ah, gosh, but true vulnerability though, pe- people are going to see how much yes. struggle there really is and then – 
there will be an inevitable doubt of my capacity or my leadership or that's usually where the fear for me ends up. Mm. It's not like, oh, these people are just waiting, waiting to use my vulnerabilities against me. That's not usually where my mind goes. It's more like, yeah, gosh, I don't know if even I believe at times, you know, when you're really dealing with your own insecurities, your own heartache, your own struggle, yes. you're like, golly. Does everyone feel this way? Is yeah. this normal? Should I? You know, that's a that's a very real struggle. Absolutely. And so uh, this guy's name is Wes Falk. He's a senior pastor uh, in Louisiana. And if you read the article, you can find it at Christianity Today. He he talks. Uh, he's had quite the run of churches that were painful, <laughs> like yeah. where he was kind of beat up and he made some mistakes and people were mean to it like this back and forth. Uh, and he, he talks about how it basically got him to a point of pretending of not wanting other people to see what was really going on. And he goes, he says this, pastors are not perfect. Behind the smiles, most of us are hurting. As a pastor, I often don't deal with my issues because, frankly, I don't want people to know I struggle. Hmm. I fear that people will use my struggles to come after me. And you could you could remove the word pastor and just put the word people in there, yeah. right? People are not perfect. Behind the su- smiles, most of us are hurting as a person. I often don't deal with my issues because, frankly, I don't want people to know that I struggle. Hmm. It's that whole, uh, you know, wanting to to put this this image up there. And maybe we as pastors feel it more deeply. I'm not sure because we have kind of a uh, there's this expectation put upon us. Um, but people in general, why do you think uh, it is just for most of us? just the common human experience to kind of put up a facade to make to kind of put our best foot forward even as maybe internally we're really struggling I, and just to be clear i don't think it's wrong to put your best foot forward mm-hmm. i don't think it's wrong to try to you know wow somebody in an interview i don't think any of that's evil or demonic i think a lot of it has to be it's pretty inescapable in my mind that it at least in part is due to a lack of trust in mm-hmm. one another a lot of that comes from the hyper isolationism that we're seeing now in a greater way than we've ever seen in yeah. human history. I think uh, it's also the myth of self-reliance. I think that like I can just figure this out myself. I can power through myself. I think that's fairly new, although we've probably fought those battles in various different ways over the centuries. But I think the other thing, though, if if we're talking in a Christian context, in a lot of ways, it's, not, it's a partial disbelief in the gospel of grace. Mm. There is still fragments i think for so many of us somewhere in our brain that i am only as good or lovable or saved as my performance dictates yeah and i think i think when we truly can learn and i think it is a learning i think it's a journey and i think it's something that we do uh, until we die learn to rest in the full radical scandalous grace of jesus christ mm. and we will become less and less ashamed to admit the reasons we needed it in the first place yeah when we don't get that, though, of course I'm going to hide that I screwed up here or that I'm insecure there because all of my identity is still kind of wrapped up in this. And yeah. so I have to kind of portray this, not have to, but there's certainly a feeling like I have to maintain this facade because everything else wrapped up into that. So if you pull that thread, mm-hmm. who knows where else, where else this could go? So it it also comes, I think, from a, a really bizarre sense that we think we can control our own narratives. Uh, and I think we're I think it's hmm. way more obvious to other people than we think it is. Yeah. And we think, you know, I think it was Ebert Hubbard who said many a man's reputation would not know his character if they met on the street. So often what people think of us and what's actually going on don't necessarily line up. Yeah. And I think social media has only exacerbated that, to be honest. That's a great point. And the irony and the, the painful irony is that it is when we put up a facade, when we are kind of like trying to put 
uh, out there, a much better version of who we are when he, the, to use his imagery, a big fake smile. Right. Uh, it is then that we will never really be able to enter into the true community that we talk about right, so right. often as to where we find healing, where we find grace, where we find love unconditionally. Because if we feel like others don't know us, not because they don't want to know us, but because we don't allow them to know us, right. well, that's going to lead to loneliness. That's going to lead to the feel like I need to put on a bigger fake smile. Right. And, and that becomes a real uh, slippery slope that's going to leave you in a bad spot that many of us have gotten to at various points. Right. And again, I don't think this is about pastors. I think this is about pastors and everybody right. that uh, this kind of putting up a facade or a big fake smile is actually going to make things a lot worse. Yeah. Th- those, uh, those actual things that we're trying to protect against, they're going to become harder. That's going to become worse. Yeah. And so many of us find that out when we're at our worst, <laughs> like, okay, I finally opened up to somebody and, Oh, I was accepted in a graceful way. Right. They prayed with me. They loved me. They actually like who I am as a person. Right. But to get to that point, so hard. Well, I think that's why the work of Brene Brown has been so important because she talks a lot about vulnerability as courage and vulnerability as telling the true story of ourselves, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think so often vulnerability is kind of portrayed as weakness in a lot of Western contexts. And I I also think the other side of this article, I get what he's saying on the one end that we're, you know, we're really busted up and so we feel like we have to put the smile on. I think the opposite is also sometimes true. Okay. Where you legitimately are having a great season of life, but you feel like, oh, I have to downplay that because it's it's like not hip to actually be excited about Classic. this so it's not part so much of your the life. big fake smile. It's the big fake temper down. Yeah, right. But not even, so much a frown, but like a... Yeah, you know what okay. I mean, though? Yeah, How sometimes totally. even like being excited is like yeah. not cool anymore. Like, oh, man, this person really likes their job. Ooh, or they're so excited with their That's marriage. Interesting. Like, sometimes I think the other side of that is true where we have to like... Yeah, it's fine. Everything's yeah. everything, everything's okay. Like to be, and maybe that's more of a generational thing. But interesting, I think particularly with younger generation too, sometimes being really amped about something can be just as problematic to like their Ooh. image. That's interesting. That's a good. That's a good one to go out on. We'd love to hear what you say to this. Uh, the struggle of feeling like you need to put on a big fake smile. Uh, that article is at our Facebook page, uh, the Common Good Radio Show. You can find that on Facebook. Uh, coming up next, we are going to talk. Uh, about a politician who is uh, running for president, who is in the news. That's coming up next on The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Thank you for joining us. I'm trying to go different voice inflection so, so on pleasant. every intro. Wow, well done. Because people, I want them to stay around and be like, what's the inflection next time? You think what's that's what's going to keep people coming I back? Do. I do. I think you have a real firm understanding. I think of there's going to be a hashtag going on. Hashtag Brian's infection. I think it's going to be it. But people are going to read it too quickly, and they're going to go. Brian has an infection. What's, what's wrong with Brian? Prayers up, man. <laughs> Just all these emojis with the hands together. I'm going to start a hashtag Brian's infection now. <laughs> Just let people guess what it is. <laughs> that sounds dangerous. That's going to be our weekly segment. Guess Brian's infection this week. <laughs> uh, oh. I, I this is totally off subject and not on the subject of my infection, but something else we just said there. Does it ever strike you as odd when someone will post something like, "Hey, if everybody could be praying, if if you're a praying type out there," and then when you look at the comments, there's just lots of hand emojis, just prayers. <laughs> right. Is that is that a good thing? Do you think, or does that always strike you as odd? I am not the right person to ask not, about. I think you're emoji. exactly the right person. No, to ask. no, no, no. I use emojis so rarely. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. I I type in full grammar and punctuation. All of it. I am um, not a good. I like gifts. I do too. I do too. 
But I did want the other day somebody had posted like, "Hey, can you be praying for my family?" And I don't know. I t- I uh, clicked on the comments, and it was like thirty of them in a row were just the hands together. And I'm like, "Well, maybe that's a, our oh. new way of saying I'm praying," or. It's just weird. Okay, <laughs> I'm not sure. I, I hit my computer and it went off the desk and fell back down. Why did you hit your computer? I didn't do it on purpose. I brought my hands up to show you the prayer hands and I hit the bottom of my computer. Uh, okay. So while we're on this emoji thing, while we're, this is the show of derailment, by it the way, is. I don't think it's we've started. Friday. I don't think it's we've started Friday. one segment. We're still on cold the, on from the topic. Halloween. Is that what yep, it is? Yep. The, uh, so a lot of people confuse a sad crying emoji with a laughing crying emoji <laughs> and the amount of times i've seen people when someone posts something online tragic and then commenting with a laughing crying oh, emoji oh no i've seen it so many times no. i'm like i think you might want to zoom in your screen for a second and just really look at the emoji <laughs> which they write post. you back no i meant the laughing <laughs> yeah. like, oh you're just a terrible person okay well all right, this is at Forbes magazine. I'm going to try to withhold the name of the person uh, until I give you some details. Let's see if I can pull this off. Ready? This person uh, has amassed an estimated $2.5 million fortune. Jimmy Carter. From real estate, investments, government pensions, and, earnings, and earnings from three books. Okay? Newt Gingrich. Uh, this person said, I wrote a best-selling book. If you write a best-selling book, you too can be a millionaire. Brian Fromm. Uh, in a New York Times Article. I wish, right? Uh, This person, since 2016, has released a book a year. In all, he has pulled in at least $1.7 million from the series. Okay? In addition to the books are his government pay and pension accounts. With 28 years in office and a current salary of $174,000, this person is entitled to around $73,000 a year or a $650,000 lump sum pile of cash. Uh, before uh, And then going on, this person also now owns uh, three homes. From the book profits, this person paid off his 30-year mortgage 25 years early, also bought a second home in Washington, D.C. for $489,000, and recently bought a vacation home for $575,000. Dollars, And so that's a little bit of background. And you might be like, well, A, who's this person? And B, why do we care? Uh, here's the issue. Here's the question. Uh, that is millions upon millions of dollars of net worth. And that is the portfolio or the background of 77-year-old Democratic uh, presidential hopeful Bernie Sanders. And the reason I bring this up is because, or the reason the author brings this up, let me read to you how the author begins this article. This is Chase Peterson Withhorn at Forbes on Forbes.com. He writes, Bernie Sanders, the Democratic Socialist Senator from Vermont, is a fierce critic of the affluent in America. And then Chase writes, that's a bit rich, considering he himself is so well off. And then he goes Mm. off on this. And I read this and I went to my, I asked myself, I said, uh, should this bother us? Is this hypocrisy or can he believe in socialism or his brand of socialism and speak out about the wealth and the rich and still be in the 0.2% highest grossing highest earners uh, in the country? Can he still be wealthy and have three homes because he earned them? He wrote the books. He worked in co- whatever else, spoke to speaking, whatever else. Uh, do you have a problem with kind of Bernie Sanders portfolio versus Bernie Sanders message. What do you think? 
Oh, boy. This feels like a trap. No, not a trap at all. I really don't know what to think about this, to be honest really? with you. I did. I read this and went on the one hand, hypocrite. And on the other hand, well, he still earned it. He still wrote the books. If he writes, you know, he still does whatever else. I don't know. Should I care? Or does that does? I guess the real question here is, does this uh, sap any power of his message against affluence and wealth because he's affluent and wealthy? I, I see what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Is he specifically running on an anti-wealth platform or is the central thrust of most of his campaign a greater increase of tax on this 0.2%? I think a little bit of both. You I think, think so? the way he wants to spread it out is through taxes. And it's funny to bring that up because at the end of the article uh, – the uh, the author said, I wonder how he feels now that he's going to be getting taxed under his own tax bill. But maybe he's happy about that. I was going to say that in and of itself is a little editorializing. If yeah. what he's saying is because and again, democratic socialism is different. That's a worthwhile yeah. distinction. You said his brain of socialism. He's that, closest to real socialism. Yeah, but, yeah right. But, but if, if what he's been saying and I don't know enough of his track record that wealth in this particular bracket is maybe the best way forward, you know, the taxing of the people in this category. And let's say, I mean, again, the author is saying, well, I wonder how he feels about this now. I also wonder how he feels about this now as well. We yeah. all wonder that. But I, it, is it fair to say, okay, you've been beating this drum for a long time. You've never even been close to this category. Now you are. Do I have? Do we have any reason to assume that he won't also then champion the same thing he's been saying, even yeah. though it now affects him in a way that it hasn't? 20 years ago. Yep. Uh, to be fair to the author, he reached out to both the Sanders directly and to Sanier, Sanders spokesperson, both of whom declined to comment. Yeah. And he's been uncharacteristically quiet about this, yes. which is a little concerning as well, to and, be honest. And again, what's some of the reasoning here? I think I wrestle with this the same way I wrestle with the Christian pastor, the evangelical pastor, who has written a book and now lives in a multi-million dollar home while preaching about Jesus. And we all know what Jesus said about wealth and how Jesus lived his life. Like I start to make those connections going, uh, I don't know, should I care about that pastor? What it was earned, but it still feels weird. Well, and I think most of those, right. Most of those pastors would do some kind of gymnastics to say, oh, it's, I mean, it's not, Money's not the root of all. It's the love of money. That's usually the the, the <laughs> different position that Sanders is in. He's he's probably speaking much more directly and specifically to some of these things where pastors are probably speaking more generally. I mean, we've seen pastors for decades justify exorbitant wealth yes. in the name of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Now, I find most of those arguments laughable, to yep. be honest. I don't think it's necessary for every pastor to live in poverty, yep. but I do think to really be an apprentice of Jesus, to follow in the way of Jesus, should give you some pause, if not a whole lot more, before yeah. purchasing a $12 million house as a pastor of a congregation, tax-free, by the way. All of that stuff to me is problematic. I can't keep talking. I'm going to start getting fired up. But yeah. like, it's, it's certainly one of those things that I think, for Sanders in particular, his position requires him to speak much more specifically to these things yeah. than most pastors are, I yep. think. It's it's it, it, you read these stories of hypocrisy, and at some point you're like, well, you know, does it take away the message? We did an article, you know, a month or two ago about one of the biggest climate change conferences and the number of people who took private jets to them. Yeah, right. Oh, wait right. a minute, but it's really the pastor ones that are so hard, and and I struggle with that. Like if I wrote a book uh, that all sorts of people bought, 
It'd be really hard not to use that money on me, but man, that would get me, that would really take me away from the message that I've been called to preach. It's really hard. It's, it is. Uh, you and I were just joking about, remember months ago, we did that whole thing about pastors with really expensive shoes. Preacher sneakers. Preacher sneakers. Yeah. And the number of people on our Facebook page who were like, none of our business. Nope, none of our business. And I was like, I feel like it is, but ah, yeah. And, uh, and maybe goes. it's none of our business as people that aren't a part of that church, but mm-hmm. it certainly, I think, is part of that congregation's business. Feels like it. it right? Like, it's like one it. thing, like, oh, it's that pastor over in California. That's none of my business. But what if it, what if you brought it close to home and, like, okay, now it's your pastor wearing an $8,000 pair of shoes on Sunday mm-hmm. morning. Now do you have a problem? Yeah. I don't know. Yep. So we'd love to know what you think about this. Like, this wasn't, you know, setting a trap, being like, oh, Bernie Sanders. I really struggle with this question of uh, personal versus message. What do you think about pastors who have multi-million dollar homes? from books or speaking engagements uh, uh, while speaking about the gospel. We would love to hear what you have to say at Facebook. That's the Common Good uh, radio show. Coming up next, an article that just says this, Superman can't share the gospel. That is next here on the Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to the Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Happy Friday. We are getting close to the end here, so a Friday, not just generally speaking. <laughs> yeah, that was really ominous. <laughs> we are nearing the Excuse end me. here. We are getting close to the end. But, oh, boy. Uh, we hope you've got a great weekend planned. You can find uh, old shows if you missed anything. You can find our podcast wherever it is you get podcasts. Uh, go ahead, subscribe, rate, review. You can also go to 1160hope.com. And there you can find old shows. You can also find our bios and stuff like that. Also, a lot of the articles we discuss uh, are up on Facebook. Some of the audio of things we've talked about, you can find on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Uh, And Twitter, at Common Good Talk. At Common Good Talk. Well, uh, I I do enjoy, I've kind of recently found this website called For the Church, ftc.co. And there was this article that they just put, this blog by somebody named Ronnie Kurtz, who is a managing editor of For the Church. Oh, yeah, love Ronnie. And also serves as the assistant director of marketing at Midwestern Baptist Theological Mm -hmm. Seminary. Uh, And the title of the article is this, Superman Can't Share the Gospel. And uh, this is a discussion about evangelism. You and I have talked many times about, you know, what spurs us on to talk about Jesus. We've talked about our own pasts uh, with uh, the whole, you know, being taught to just go up and cold call people with the clipboards or whatever else. Uh, And I think what he's got to say here is really uh, gets at some of the attitude as to when we are best able Hmm. uh, to talk about Jesus. So let me read the last three paragraphs, in fact, of this this blog, and then you can can jump in here. Uh, Ronnie Kurtz writes, you see, Superman can't share the gospel. His self-sufficiency and undeniable strength make it futile and rather a silly enterprise. But you, Christian, you are not Superman, and praise God. For when others hear the gospel from your lips, they hear it not from you, from one who can leap over buildings in a single bound, but from one who needs grace for the next breath. Your frailty and fragility adorn the gospel and show that the power is not contained in us, but the treasure we have found in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. See, weakness really is the way forward for the Christian, and this is good news for those who are weak. We know that our weakness has an expiration date as the day of resurrection is coming. Yet for now, we embrace our weakness and proclaim the only one we know to be strong, Jesus Christ. 
I think that's really well put. Hmm. What do you think? Oh, boy. I'm torn on this one, actually. You are? Okay. okay Give so us both me, sides. Give yeah. Us. All right. All right. Both sides. Let me see if I can do this. One, I'm remembering a letter, actually, that I got from a friend when I was in college, uh, just a friend from a ministry. I think we were both working at the same church. And she wrote me this letter that I, I kept for a long time because it was sort of observing in me. And I think one of her lines actually was, you're not Superman and you need to stop trying to be. Huh. Like, it's it's doing a disservice to all the people that you think you're trying to reach by trying to pretend like you have it all together. And I was really, really moved by that and convicted. So I think there's a Did big – Did that feel accurate at the time? Oh, yeah, for sure, okay. for sure. And I'm, I probably was not nearly as good – at faking it as I thought that I was. Um, but yeah, that, that felt like a, like a good holy punch to the stomach. The other piece, and we were talking about this earlier, right? The, the temptation for pastors to put on the smile is often kind of linked to this need to feel like I got every answer. Yep, or my yep, life yep. is always awesome. My family's always killing it. Like there's a innate kind of cultural drift towards looking like we're totally self-sufficient, sufficient, like she's saying Superman is. So I get, I get all of that. My one issue and it kind of came toward the end here when it says, now we embrace our weakness. Okay. When Paul talks about boasting in our weakness, I think that's very, very different than embracing it. Okay. Because it. I so often think part of what becomes trendy is to keep proclaiming that what unifies us as Christ followers is our weakness. What unifies mm. us is not our weakness. What unifies us is Jesus. Mm. And so often I think it can be easy to to move from boasting in our weakness because it's what leads us to a dependence in Jesus that that life is only found then and when we can actually recognize that. I think the yeah. gospel is no more real and on display than when we're broken. I totally believe that. But sometimes I feel that that can look a little bit like wallowing when we mm. remain in that place for too long. And what, the way that I obviously that play out is like, hey, can't help myself. Can't help that I had one more drink. Can't help that I went to that website. Can't help that I'm a jerk to my – because I'm weak. I'm weak, I'm broken, I need Jesus to, you know, to heal me, to fix me, which is partially very true, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but I think it often can be an excuse for not pursuing actively the kind of life that Jesus calls us to live in right here and now, not just in the afterlife after we die, but the John 10, 10 fullness right here and mm -hmm. now, I think, is often undercut by this maybe over-glorification of weakness? Does that make sense? It does. It does. And obviously an over-glorification of either by definition is not helpful. Yeah. But uh, finding that middle space like, yes, sinner saved by grace. And yet, and yet the gospel writers, Paul, Peter, very rarely ever refer to us, if at all, as sinners. They refer to us as saints, mm. brothers and sisters. So if that title, if the cross of Jesus Christ breaks us of that title, then do we do the cross of disservice by continuing to kind of live in only that one space? That's good. And, and maybe what he's getting at also is the attitude that says, I'm not a saint because of myself. Yeah, I'm right. Saintly. Right. Uh, but that it is Jesus who who bestows that upon me uh, and then going out of that. I would just wonder if he's also trying to get at this attitude that says – Sometimes we don't talk about Jesus to other people because we don't feel like we're our lives match, like we are worthy of it. Uh, That's th there's point. almost this attitude that says, I'm encouraging people to put their faith in me and I'm not worthy of that. And this mm. strike, this stands as a reminder of, you know what, your worthiness, like you just said really so well, is uh, is in Christ. But now in Christ, you're a child of God, you're a saint, like you're, you're not right. a broken sinner. Uh, but now go out and share that wonderful good news, I think, right. uh, is well put. What do you think stops people in general? We've talked about this before, but just in general from talking about Jesus, what's, uh, what stops? What, what are the fears you hear from people when it's like, 
you know, I, I w- yeah, from, that stops people from uh, talking about their faith with other people. I think a couple of things. Often people find their story to be unremarkable. You know, we so elevate the hallmark made for TV movie stories that we think, you know, I was never a drug dealer. I never went to prison. Like, I don't know that I don't know that people necessarily feel like their story is all that compelling. I think a lot of it comes from just run of the mill social nervousness. Like, oh, gosh, what if they reject me? What if everyone looks at me weird? I don't think we ever outgrow that, to be honest, no matter how confident we get. He references at the very beginning of this um J.I. Packer's weakness is the way. He says, our proud hearts shrink from weakness. Mm. I think that's part of it. I think at the center of the gospel story is, at least in some capacity, admitting that I couldn't do it on my own. Yeah. I think we run from that because we glorify self-sufficiency. I actually really like what uh, John Piper says here. Uh, he says, your ordinary ordinariness? Ordin- I think so. Yeah, your ordinariness is not a liability. It's an asset, oh, which I actually really like. So, so often people are like, my story is really unremarkable. You're like, you know who... Also has a kind of unremarkable story. Everybody, Everybody. all of us. Like, yeah. I think that is a greater connection point for sharing the gospel than we realize. And I think we do a disservice by trying to fluff it up more than it actually needs yeah. to be. Or because I think that's where people are actually at. Like, oh, your story feels really accessible. It feels kind of like mine. And I think we we actually do ourselves and the gospel a disservice by trying to make ourselves look better yep. or trying to make the story more dramatic or I think people can sniff that out too, you know? And also if, if we give this impression like you, all the stories have to be dramatic, then on the other end, people are going, well, I'm not being dramatically. That's right. I don't have anything dramatic to be saved from. So right. Exactly. That's the point. Right. I'm kind of right in the middle there. Your ordinariness is, is a virtue. It's a, it's not a hindrance. That's good. It's that's not a liability. Not it's a an liability. asset. Yep. Uh, and so lean into that ordinariness. If you were giving people counsel, uh, one or two steps to take to just kind of grow as, you know, someone who more regularly talks about Jesus in normal ways, in ordinary ways, in their neighborhoods, their offices, whatever. Uh, what is one or two uh, hmm. things you'd give people to uh, to kind of start with? You know, we talk about the blessed practices a lot yeah. in the community that begin with prayer, listen, eat, serve, and story. I'm a I'm actually a big believer in that acronym that we are first beginning, you know, with prayer and we're listening to people, yeah. we're sharing meals, we're serving them. But the story piece is is often missed because I think when people hear a story, they assume that what we mean by that is like their fully encapsulated theological treatise. Yeah. You're like, no, no, no. Your story is just the story of how God has worked in your heart. Yeah. You don't have to have every bit of doctrine and theology cornered and numbered and identified. It's just about, hey, I don't have all the answers. In fact, the more that I grow into this thing, the more questions I have sometimes. I can just tell you, I was like this. I met Jesus, and by his grace, I look differently now. I behave differently now. I can tell you my will is different. That that, that level of honesty is, for me, it's often the piece of evangelism that's missed because we feel like, well, what if they come back with the pre-trib, post-trib question or (laughs) ask about eschatology? You know what I mean? Those can be really nerve-wracking questions hypothetically, and I just encourage people like, man, I don't know that it's necessarily about that. I think it's yeah. about telling the story of the work of the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ in your life. That's well put. We we want to grow in this. So take a read of that article and love it's to great know article. what you think uh, at our Facebook page. Well, it's that time of the day. We are going to go to <laughs> Interweb Insanity. We're going to end the show, end the week with just some crazy stories from the internet. That's what's coming up next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. <clears throat> Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Well, that music can only mean one thing. It is the end of the show. Interweb Insanities. When we read uh, 
We are sent stories by our two producers, Keith and PJ. And sometimes they have that nasty laugh that just says, yep, the devious laugh that's like, you guys are going to, you're about to, you're, you're in trouble here. It's almost nefarious. That's a good word for it. But <laughs> hey, we read them anyway. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we're going to do right now. Why don't you go first, my friend? I'll tell you why not. I don't want to. <laughs> but you're right, going. Go. I'm going to go. Uh, out of Australia, police find $200 million of meth hidden inside sriracha bottles. Wow. This is a spicy story. Four, <laughs> four people have been arrested after allegedly trying to sneak 400 kilograms, roughly 880 pounds of methamphetamine into Australia in hundreds of bottles of sriracha branded hot sauce. The boxes, which were sent by freight from the United States to Sydney, were declared as containing bottles of chili sauce, Australia's New South Wales police said in a statement Thursday. But testing by the Australian Border Force earlier this month found the bottles contained large amounts of meth. I would say that. Yeah, that's large. Which has... (laughs) Which has an estimated potential street value of over three hundred million Australian dollars, or two hundred and eight million American dollars. In Australia, the street drug is colloquially known as ice. Now, as I was saying, uh, drugs are bad. Okay. I, I saw that one coming. Missouri, a bartender got a tip worth two dollars. It turned into fifty thousand dollars. Most watering hole patrons don't offer lottery tickets as gratuities, but one regular at Missouri's Bleachers Bar does it quite often. And a bartender at the O'Fallon establishment is now a $50,000 winner because of it. No, isn't this a movie with Nick Cage? (laughs) Meg Ryan's probably in it. (laughs) CNN reports on Taylor Russey's windfall, which came about after the customer handed out Powerball tickets on October 19th to a bunch of regulars at the bar, including Russey. It's just something nice he does for us, she tells the New York Post, adding that he still gives her a cash tip in these instances as well. The next day, the bar's lottery terminal informed staff that a $50,000 ticket had been sold there. I was like, guys, who won all this money and didn't tell anybody? Russie tells the Missouri Lottery, not remembering at first that she held one of the tickets and was the winner. Money, money, money. (laughs) Money! Money! (laughs) Okay, so it's 1994's It Could Happen to You with Nicolas Cage and, uh... Oh, gosh, it doesn't say who the other... It's not Meg Ryan. Somebody else. It's a real movie, though. That's awesome. You're going to want to skip the next one. I'm going to want to skip it? Oh, boy. Oh, no, never mind. Sorry, I got lost on here. Nope. Uh, do it. Do it. <laughs> I do should it. do it. It's Missouri again. I thought you were about to have to read the same one. I thought we had a misprint, but it's just the same place. It's <laughs> just the same place. Just the same place. Man wearing it's not a crime unless you get caught shirt gets caught on security cam committing crime. <laughs> <laughs> this one makes me weirdly happy. You can file this story under proof irony isn't dead. On October 22nd, a man walked into the Twin City Coin Laundry in Crystal City, Missouri, wearing a T-shirt with an interesting motto, considering what he did next. While wearing a shirt that said it's not a crime unless you get caught, the man proceeded to break into a vending machine and made off with 15 pounds of change in cash in full view of an HD security camera. And all the man's crime bagged him $600 in cash and change and caused about $1,300 worth of damage in the vending machine, but the owner hopes it also lands him behind bars. (laughs) That makes sense. (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. Georgia. Sticky notes help Georgia student apply for tech internship. A Georgia Institute of Technology student landed an internship with a Fortune 500 company after using sticky notes to communicate with the firm. Uh, Gersimron, Gersimron Singh, who Nailed studies it. computer science at Georgia Tech, used sticky notes to spell out hire me on a window in his apartment that faces the headquarters of tech company <laughs> NCR. The next morning, a friend alerted Singh to a reply in a window in the NCR building. Email? 
<laughs> Singh said he spent a lot of, on sticky notes to spell out his email address then <laughs> in the window. I never expected them to continue the conversation, but they did. So it was pretty amazing. He said he started email correspondence with NCR employees and eventually ended up receiving a summer internship interview. Uh, offer from the company's vice president of IT. Wow. Singh ended up getting the internship through a different route when he participated in Georgia Tech's annual annual Hack GT Hackathon event. Oh. His team won the event and they were offered company internships by NCR, which was one of the Hackathon sponsors. Impressive. The most impressive. What is a hackathon? I think it's exactly what it sounds. Probably who can hack into things, but probably not like nefariously. Did you know that was a thing? Nope, I did not. I'm also bad with computers. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Didn't you knock it over earlier in the show? I did. (laughs) (laughs) All right, New York. Train rider reports suspicious packages. Turns out to be machines used to report suspicious packages. (laughs) Uh, A train rider at a New York station on Monday noticed some suspicious packages sitting around. So did their civic duty and reported it to the Metropolitan Transportation Authority through a special intercom system designed to report such incidents. These six-foot-tall packages, however, weren't suspicious and contained the very technology used to report questionable events, such as suspicious items lying around the train station. This is a sermon illustration. This through is through. funny. The boxes at the Metro North New Rochelle station, located around 25 miles northeast of New York City, contain machines hosting the MTA's help point system, described as a new technology program that puts subway customers in touch with transit personnel via an interactive communication device. I guess irony can be pretty ironic sometimes. <laughs> That's really funny. Good short drops today. Those are good short ones, but yeah. Uh, that one, There's a sermon illustration in that one somewhere. <laughs> you are correct. Well, we hope you've had a great week. We've really enjoyed being with you all week. Uh, have a great weekend. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life.